I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to our passage for this morning. Our passage this morning is found in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and as you're getting there, I want to begin this morning with a story. It's a story about a police officer who pulls a driver over for speeding. After he has explained to the driver why he got pulled over, before the driver can even respond, his wife, who's sitting next to him, says to him, Honey, I told you, you've got to drive slower until you get your license. <laughs> now, before that driver could even respond, the, 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 the police officer is just stunned by this. He says, You mean you are driving without a license? Again, before the driver can respond, his daughter, who's sitting in the back seat, says, Officer, please be understanding with my father. He gets excited when he's drunk. <laughs> Police officer is stunned. You're, you're driving without a license while intoxicated? Again, the driver can't even respond, and his son in the back seat throws up his hands and says, I knew we wouldn't get very far in this stolen car. That father had three unwanted witnesses, didn't he? This morning, we are going to hear from a true witness, a, a desired, wanted witness. This is not a human witness we're going to hear from. This is going to be a witness of God himself. We've been studying the book of 1 John this summer, and we're coming to the last chapter together this morning. And John continues to refute those false teachings that he's been addressing since the beginning of the letter. So let's go to our passage together. 1 John chapter 5, where I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now there's a lot here, isn't there? John is, is getting to the end of his letter, and he's leading up to the climax. He's leading up to the second purpose, the second reason for writing this letter. Now we saw, saw the first reason back in chapter 2. John said he's writing this letter to, to address the false teaching that has made its way into the church. And we actually looked at this second reason a few weeks ago. It's found in verse 13, the verse immediately following our passage this morning, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
John wants to provide these first century believers with the assurance of their salvation. These false teachers have created doubt, and that's difficult. It's difficult when we doubt our eternal destiny. And so John wants to comfort them by, by explaining the truth to them. And our passage this morning sets the stage for that. Now, questioning one's faith and, and doubting our salvation is, is a very real thing. It happens far too frequently in our world today, as well as in that first century world that John was writing to. But the question is this. Can someone be absolutely certain of their salvation? John is, is directly speaking to this question in this passage this morning. And throughout his letter, he has been providing test after test to provide assurance to his readers. And he provides that assurance through the asking of three basic questions that he is implying throughout his letter. The questions are this, do you believe, do you obey, and do you love? Now, obviously, the false teachers fail miserably on all three counts. They do not believe that Jesus is truly God incarnate. And they do not obey God's moral teachings. In fact, they make light of sin. And they do not love. In fact, they teach a form of elitist pride and, and divisiveness that basically boils down to a hatred for anyone who's not as spiritually enlightened as they are. Well, as John begins our passage today, he is braiding a cord of three strands. Those three strands are made up of belief and obedience and love. And he braids this cord that tightly binds the Christian to Christ. And all three of these are the result of God's loving and active work in a believer's life. In verses 1 and 2, John is pointing back to something he spoke about in, verse, in chapter 4. When he tells us that, that our ability to believe and to obey and to love is, is the result of God first loving us. And in verse 3, John is getting to the heart of, of agape love. Now, agape is that Greek word that, that is the kind of love that, God, that comes only from God. It's the kind of sacrificial, divine love that God invites us to share with others. It's God's agape love for us that caused him to send his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. And when we agape love God, and we desire to love him, to obey him, to serve him with everything that we have and everything we are, now, sometimes people choose to follow Jesus because of what they get out of it. Sometimes people choose to follow Jesus because their life is better with him than it is without him. And certainly that's true. When we follow Jesus, we can experience more peace and more joy and more meaning in life than we ever could apart from him because we have the Holy Spirit within us. But that's not agape love. There's something deeper and more profound when we find ourselves loving God because he first loved us and because he gave himself for us. Agape love leads us to love God because he's worthy and deserving of our love and devotion. And that takes our love for God deeper and it causes us to be willing to obey him. Agape love is not about warm and fuzzy feelings. Agape love is so much deeper than that. In verses 4 and 5, we see John coming to what might be the most comforting words in his, own his whole letter. He tells us that everyone who is born of God, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, has the power to become the winner in the, the game of life. 
has the power to overcome the sin and the power of sin and the schemes of our enemy, has the power to overcome this pagan system called the world. Now, John tells us that the Christian's secret weapon in this is faith. And commentators disagree on what John is talking about when he says in this passage that, that we, our faith causes us to overcome the world. Some commentators would say that it's, it's that initial coming to faith, that initial decision to follow Jesus that causes us to overcome the world. Others would say it's those daily decisions to, to resist temptation, those daily decisions to live as God calls us to live. I tend to believe that John is speaking of both of those. That our faith overcomes the world when we make that initial decision to follow Jesus, as well as in those daily decisions to live as God calls us to live. In verse 5, we see John changing. He's been speaking in the past tense, and he begins to talk about what God is continuing to do in our lives through our faith. We overcome the world as we continue to believe and trust in Jesus. We continue through our faith to win victories over the pressures of the world around us that tries to entice us. John asked the question, who is it that overcomes the world? And John answers, answers, the Son of God who overcomes the world. John is strongly underlining a basic Christian principle. He's saying there is no victory over the world except through Christ. That faith in Christ is the secret to always being a winner. Now, please understand, this is not health and wealth, name it and claim it Christianity. This is not suggesting that the, the Christian life is without challenge. In fact, it is Jesus himself who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John has given us the key to victory it's a victory through Christ. And I love the way that the, the Living Bible paraphrases these verses. Every child of God can obey him, defeating sin and evil pleasure by trusting Christ to help him. But who could possibly fight and win this battle except by believing that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Victory over sin in the world is dependent on how we see Jesus. John is saying that it's, it's more than just joining a club, like you might join the Rotary Club or, or a book club. It's more than just joining a Christian club and attending the weekly meetings on Sunday morning. No, this all hinges. It all hinges on what we believe to be true about Jesus. It's at this point where John brings forward his three witnesses. And he says this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. There are three witnesses who testify about who Jesus is and what he's done. And those witnesses are the water, and the blood, and the Holy Spirit. Now to explain who Jesus is and what he does, John takes us back to the two most important events of Jesus' earthly life. The first one is his baptism. When God declares that this is his beloved son as he bestows on him the Holy Spirit. The second is Jesus' death on the cross, where Jesus died for the sins of the world. Now it's no 
no mistake that in verse 6, Jesus, or John uses the words Jesus Christ. He wants everyone to understand that there is no difference between Jesus and the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. There's also no mistake that John says that Jesus comes by water and blood. John is addressing the most serious Gnostic heresy of all. They refuse to believe that Jesus' death had any significance for us. Now, Gnostic teachers had no problem with Jesus' baptism. They would argue that, that in that moment, God was temporarily empowering Jesus for ministry through the giving of his Holy Spirit. But they refused to believe that Jesus' death served any purpose for us. They would argue that there was no, no purpose behind Jesus' death, that, that in that moment, Jesus was not reconciling man to God as he died on the cross and paid the price for the, the sins of the world. There are people today who make that same mistake. They would agree that Jesus is a real historical figure, that he did walk this earth. They would even say that he was a very good man. But they refused to believe that Jesus' death had any purpose at all. Certainly not the purpose that we believe that it did. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not just shedding blood. Jesus' death on the cross was the very lifeblood of Christianity. Now John knew the importance of shed blood for the, the atonement of sin, for the payment of sin. Ever since God had, had formed the nation of Israel, shedding of blood had been required for the, the payment, the atonement for sin. And in fact, the, the calendar for Israel climaxed with a special day of atonement. On this day of atonement, there were two young bulls and a, a goat that were brought forward and, and slain, and their blood was sprinkled to atone for, to pay for the sins of the priests and all the people. But even that wasn't enough. Because then they would bring forward a second goat, and the high priest would confess the sins of the people over that goat in case there was someone whose conscience wasn't cleansed, in case there was someone who had forgotten to confess a, a sin that they had committed. They would then take that goat and, and lead it into the wilderness and release it. It's from this practice that we get that term scapegoat. A scapegoat is someone who takes the blame for someone else. Here's the thing. As thorough as the Israelites were in their day of atonement rituals, the sacrifices that they offered never really removed, never really removed sin. They just temporarily covered over them. And new sacrifices constantly had to be offered afterwards. But when Jesus died, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, died on the cross for the sins of the world, no further sacrifices were needed. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, and it was. Now, it's at this point in our passage that John brings forward his third witness, the Holy Spirit, who is the truth. The Holy Spirit is a, a powerful inner witness to the believer about what is true. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies to us what is true. And that's what John is getting at in verse 10 when he says, the man who really believes in the Son of God will find God's testimony in his own heart. Not only did the Spirit testify externally at the baptism of Jesus and at the, the death and through the cross of Jesus, but he also testifies internally in the believer's heart. John has made a, an open and shut case 
explaining to the people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one who, who comes and, and died for our sins, and the one who rose again, one who lives now and forever. There's a story that I was reading recently about a pastor relating an experience he had growing up as a child in West Baltimore. Seems that this, this pastor as a child often had to try to convince his friends of, of things that were true about him and, and about his family. For example, he, he told his friends about growing up on a military base in New York and how the fighter jets would fly right over their houses. It seemed like they flew so low that he could almost reach out and touch them. Now, nobody had ever experienced this in this West Baltimore neighborhood, and so his friends would say, nah, man, you're lying. You're lying. Another time, he told his friends about a, a station wagon that his family had had, had before. This station wagon had a sunroof in it. Now, nobody in this West Baltimore neighborhood had ever had a car with a sunroof. They had a hard time picturing how a, a window could be placed in the roof of a car. Again, they said, nah, man, you're lying. You're lying. And so to, to help them understand, to help them believe what he was saying was true, this, this young boy would say to him, if you don't believe me, you can ask my mother. Because a parent's testimony adds credibility to the story, right? John is saying to his readers, if you don't believe us, you can ask God, because the Spirit is truth. Because it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. You may have a hard time believing John and the other disciples. They're just men. They're fallible. They're capable of error. They're, they're even capable of deceit. But God is infallible, and he is incapable of lying. And by refusing to believe God's testimony about his sons, about his son, those Gnostics were calling God a liar. And throughout the centuries, there have been many people who have refused to believe in the truth about Jesus. And in effect, they're calling God a liar. And by doing so, they forfeit eternal life spent with him. John's purpose in writing this passage is to help those Christians, both then and now, to have assurance of their salvation. John is writing to those who are doubting their salvation. And as he comes to the end of the passage, he, he makes it clear. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John is spelling out God's testimony with crystal clear terms. God has given us eternal life through his Son, and if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again, then you get to experience eternal life with him. But for those who reject, those who reject uh, God's son, they forfeit life. I want to finish with this story. There's a wealthy man who uh, was a widower. He had a son, and, and they, they enjoyed each other's company. And one of the things they enjoyed doing was collecting art together. Now, this father was very wealthy, and so they would travel the world and collect the, the finest artwork. Their home collection had works by Monet and Picasso, by Rembrandt and by Van Gogh. It was a kind of collection that became known to the, to the art world at large. Well, war came, and the son enlisted in the army, and he was sent overseas to fight for the nation. 
Each day the father prayed that the Lord would keep his son safe and that he would bring him home at the end of his service. But one day, just before Thanksgiving, that dreaded telegram came. The telegram told him that his son had, had died in, in the line of duty, that he had died trying to evacuate some men who had come under fire. And the man was distraught. This was his last living relative. His, his wife had passed. This was his only son. And he was dreading the holidays that were coming. Christmas morning, there was a knock at the door. And when he opened the door, there standing before him was a soldier in uniform carrying a package. The soldier explained that he was a friend of, of the man's son. That they'd grown quite close during their time serving together. And that the son had told him about this art collection that they had, had assembled together. Soldier explained, I'm a bit of an artist myself, and I, I brought this for you. The man took the package, he opened it up, and there was a portrait of his son. It wasn't a masterpiece, but it captured his son in striking detail. After the soldier left, the, the father knew exactly where he was going to display this portrait. They had always placed their favorite painting, their most expensive painting, on the mantle above the fireplace. And he went and he took down the picture that was there worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And he put this portrait up of his son. He found himself just gazing at it, sometimes for hours during the day. Over the weeks that came, the, the soldier sent several letters to the father, explaining what a wonderful man his son was, how many lives he had saved, but even more importantly, how many lives he had touched during his service. The man realized how precious this, this painting was becoming. It was the most precious painting he had, and he often told his friends, it's the greatest gift I've ever received. Well, that spring, this father got ill, and he passed away. And the art world was notified that there was going to be an auction. They were going to auction off this, this art collection. And on the day of the, the auction, everybody assembled, anticipating getting their hands on, on some of the classics, some of the great masterpieces from these great artists. As the auctioneer began the auction, he explained that the, the first painting to be auctioned off wasn't on the list. It was going to be the portrait of, of the son. They began the auction and, and asked for an opening bid, and there was silence. This wasn't the painting they had come to bid on. He prompted, do, do I have a bid of, of even $100? Again, there was silence. Somebody called out from the back, let's move on to the masterpieces. That's what we're here for. The auctioneer said, no, we must sell this one first. There was a man sitting in the front row who was a neighbor to this, this father. He said, I, I knew the son. I always admired the son. I would be honored to display his portrait in my house, but I only came with $50. Would you accept a bid of $50? The auctioneer said, we have an opening bid of $50 from the man in the front row. Do we have a higher bid? Silence. The auctioneer said, $50. Go in once. Go in twice. Sold to the man in the front row. At this, there was a collective sigh of relief in that room. Now we get to bid on the real stuff. Now we get to bid on the masterpieces. Can you imagine their, their surprise when the auctioneer declared that the proceedings were now concluded? The auction was done. There was a grumble, an angry grumble in the room, and somebody called out, hey, what about the, the other masterpiece? We came to bid on those. What about those? The auctioneer said, it's very simple. 
according to the will of the Father. Whoever takes the Son gets it all. Whoever takes the Son gets it all. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John's words are words of assurance to believers in his day and to us today. If you have by faith placed your trust, made Jesus your Lord and Savior, then you have eternal life. You have abundant and full life today and for all of eternity. But for those who refuse the Son, they forfeit life, both now and forever. John's message is, is very simple, and yet it's very profound. Choose Christ. Choose life. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which which speaks to our heart, speaks to our soul. It communicates the words of eternal life. Lord, we are so grateful that, that you want to provide that assurance for those who have placed you at that center of our lives, who accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Thank you for the assurance that we can have in knowing that our eternity is secure with you. But Lord, I also want to pray for the person here today who has not made that decision yet. The person who perhaps has, has been seeking and wondering and questioning and searching and yet hasn't made that decision yet to make you Lord of their life. I pray that you would be prompting them by your spirit, that you would make faith possible to them, that they might accept that this word that we have heard this morning is true, is true 2,000 years ago and is true today and it will be true 2,000 years from now. May that person raise their hand in their hearts and say yes to you, Jesus. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.